Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks, Owen. Good to see you again. As always, we're doing this virtually, our first episode of the Passive Income Series. So this is a mini-series as part of the Australian Investors Podcast. And the idea behind this series is to help people build a portfolio that can provide uh, income throughout the cycle. So we're talking about you know portfolios that are appropriately balanced. Over these four series, we're going to talk about how to build that portfolio from scratch um, we're going to talk about the way you do that in so far as using your four buckets. You've got, you know, growth. Um, you've got growth alts, defensive alts, and defensive. Basically, like four buckets. Most people think of them as two, but you use four, which is really neat. Um, and we're talking about generating con- consistent income. Um, something that people, and we'll discuss in this episode. In fact, something that people tend to forget is that over the market cycle, between four and five dollars comes from dividend income or in income stream from equities in Australia. It's a bit different across asset classes, which we'll discuss in just a moment. Um, and then we're going to we're going to talk we're going to introduce people to this portfolio construction for income. Then in an episode we're going to do a fictitious example. So um, we're to a couple say uh, towards the the you could say the guy in the midlife. Um, they've got some kids. Years. Yet the latter years, they're moving into the latter years. How are they going to build a portfolio that generates consistent income? Um, and so that will be relevant for basically everyone that's looking um, from, say, 30 onwards. How can they start to set themselves up for that? Uh, and then we're going to have a Q&A session as the last session of this uh, income series. So if you do want to ask Drew or I questions, maybe you have a question about a fund, an ETF, maybe you're thinking like, oh, I'm approaching retirement, or maybe you're thinking like, I'm young, should I focus on listed investment companies or ETFs or managed funds? Write into us. You can find us podcast at rask.com.au. That's podcast at rask.com.au. Please use the subject line uh, passive. So use the subject line passive so we know to fast track your questions through to us for the final session. So Drew, with all of that said, the first session today is about we're talking about like the, the risk on, um, the growth, the kind of growth alt side of this portfolio that we're putting together. Um, and this is where we talk about things like dividend income. We talk about the more like the higher yielding style products. How can people think about the risk reward spectrum and income versus capital growth? Like, is it one or the other or is it like all or none? Like people tend to be quite parochial with this. Like I'm a growth investor, I'm an income investor. Is it all or, all or nothing? I think probably should be both. But I think one of the things a lot of people forget to do once you start managing your own money or getting someone to manage your money is working out the purpose. You know, it won't do Simon Sinek and where's your why, but what's your why? <laughs> but but what what is the, the premise of investing? Um, start at the most simple point. If you've got a uh, million dollars and you need fifty thousand dollars to live on, you know, actually understanding how much you need to live on, then why take more risk than you need to generate fifty thousand dollars a year? Is mm. the issue? I think that should be a starting point. You know, if you know back in two thousand seven, you could buy a term deposit seven percent for five years, but we recommend it. Not many people took it up. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably behavioural bias there. But if yep. if you know if you uh, seems stupid now but if you've got enough money that you can buy a seven percent term deposit and be 
completely met your expectations. That probably should be the starting point. Mm. Um, of course, people who bought um, who took up long duration term deposits would have been laughing all the way to the bank for a few years after that. Um, but then, obviously, you would want to had to roll them over. Yeah, you would have had to have rolled over into lower yielding TDs or into risk on assets, which probably would have been a good thing at the time. Um, how about then in terms of like, does high risk always or high yield always equal high risk? So I think a lot of people will be like, well, it's a high yield, therefore I'm taking more risk. Yeah, I think it's a common misconception. And in some cases, it's true. You know, there's there's something in our heads uh, that seems to be if it's 10% or more, it's risky. <laughs> I've got a couple of examples of things that have yielded 10% that ended up being quite, you know, more secure than what they uh, clients initially thought they might be. Um, I think it's understanding where the 10% comes from. So, a lot of the times, if you're getting a high income, you're actually investing in a depreciating asset. So, that asset is becoming worth less and you're getting a portion of that capital back. Um, always wary of anything that says guaranteed or you know, high income. Um, I mean, perfect. There's examples we've had where we invested into a, a f- basically a fund of about 50 farms that was offering an income of 14% at the time we bought it, which naturally we were very <laughs> wary of. Uh, it just turned out that the, the seller happened to be distressed at the time. So sometimes it's to do with where the asset's coming from uh, rather than an issue with the assets. But yeah, so high r- income doesn't necessarily equal high risk, but you need to ask more questions. Mm. So how about then if just from a high level, if we just think about balanced portfolios, just from a high level, um, what could someone expect reasonably throughout the cycle, uh, a balanced portfolio to yield? Like in the, we've obviously had this great unwind in interest rates and now we're starting to see them go up. So now we're trying to, we're getting the back end of that cycle. But throughout the cycle, like if we look 10 years out into the future from now, say, what would you reasonably expect a, a, a diversified portfolio to yield? Yeah, for context, I started it back in 2005, and our assumption then was a balanced portfolio could generate about 6 to 6.5% a year. Uh, gradually, lower interest rates, everyone, you know, talk about that again, it's, we, know, <laughs> we know how far they fell. They got down to as low as probably 4 was the expectation. And at the moment, you know, a simple rule of thumb, we think about four to four and a half to five percent income you can generate from a broadly diversified balanced portfolio. And that's like you'd start at 50-50 between growth and uh, defensive, but most are closer to 40-60, so more more aggressively growth. Mm. So four to five at the moment. When I was looking at the 60-40 portfolio from Vanguard and the way that they do their assumptions with their they do like a 10-year market outlook every year, and I think it was the 2021 um, edition of that. They said the they're looking at between 4 and 6% depending on that tilt, so um, over the 10-year horizon. Obviously, that's just modeling and it's just forecast. It's not like truth and it's not guaranteed, but it just gives people an indication that it could be at the lower end of the range if asset prices kept going higher. And as we know, what's happened since then is some asset prices have fallen. So, um Really interesting. Okay, so before we get too deep into basically how, like which, I guess, asset classes and which products within those asset classes make sense, we're going to talk about managed funds, we're going to talk about list investment companies, crypto, everything in this session, and we're going to do a bit of a quick fire in a minute. But um, I thought maybe what we could do just to round out the knowledge of our, our investors who are listening is basically like how tax works. And obviously, you being a financial advisor, you deal with these questions all the time. So I thought maybe we'll just go through the key uh, pillars in a 
diversified income generating portfolio to just explain just quickly how it works and maybe where there's control and where there isn't. Uh, And we'll talk about super quickly as well. So I'll start with just direct shares. So direct shares, most people will know you, you, you pay tax in two different ways. You pay tax on capital gains. There is a discount if you hold the shares for more than 12 months. Um, And it's just like any type of tax. It just goes into your assessable income. Uh, And then we've got uh, dividends and dividend income is pretty straightforward. You receive a dividend, you pay tax on that as income um, the benefit of Aussie shares is obviously you've got franked dividend income or fully franked dividend income, which is uh, basically a tax credit stored at the ATO, and you recoup that when you do your tax return, basically. You've got to hold the shares for more than 45 days, and there are a few eligibility criteria, but that's loosely it. And one of the benefits of having direct shares is that you are in control, which we'll talk about that in a minute, but direct shares give you control over when you sell and also you know basically the nature of the investment so if it's a, it's a, if it's a dividend investment you know you're getting a dividend investment whereas if you're in a pooled fund the fund manager may have discretion so um, where it gets a little bit more complex Drew, and this is where I'll hand over to you thank you very much um, is is managed funds and unit trust structures so maybe you can now explain how tax is handled and you as an advisor would explain this to a client yeah, I think there's a lot of people who have invested in managed funds for a decade that still don't understand how it works and why they're not getting the income they expect. So, I mean, managed funds are super simple. They're a unit trust. They're structured as a unit trust, same as a family trust. Uh, they're essentially a feed-through or a pass-through entity is probably the best way to explain it. So, every piece of income, profit, realized capital gains that the fund manager realizes in investing your capital is distributed as taxable income at the end of the year, at the end of the financial year. So that's why most of the funds, if they're doing well, they'll give you a massive jump. Or the, you know, I saw uh, chat room queries about why my iShares uh, ETF fell in July last year. That's because they pay out; they have to pay out all the profits every year. Um, they can't control it. If they've done well, they'll give you, you probably get a big one and they've realized capital gains. If they haven't done so well and they haven't realized any gains, well, you might get no income that year. Um, And I think the key there is defining it's paid as income and is taxable, uh, but it isn't necessarily from dividends. It's it's income and growth that you're getting paid. Uh, Was that a reasonable (laughs) explanation? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So if there's unrealized gains, um, how does does the – trust or managed fund or even an ETF in this instance, how do they? Ha- how does it get handled? So nothing on unrealized gains, only on realized. And then if you happen to have carried forward, so if the trust had a bad year the year before and there's carried forward losses, then you might get a smaller or no distribution because the gains have been offset against those losses from the prior year. Um, and I think it's quite a kind of unique and people forget when you look at a fund within a portfolio Good funds can actually go nowhere for ten years. If they're going, if they're realizing gains every year, they're paying out all that gain as a distribution. Uh, so the value of the units can actually stay flat. But so it's very important to look at both what's paid out and and the change in the unit price. Mm. And um, this is something, yeah, that caught people off guard with the ETFs, as you said last year. I, <laughs> all the Reddit forums. I think you brought this up at the time. People that were in those like tech-focused thematic ETFs were particularly caught by surprise because they're like, oh my God, what's just happened to my you know, my investment? It's fallen by 10% or 15%. Um, little did they know this was the tax structure and they would get that paid back to them in another way. Um, and so for for ETF investors, I think if, if you just want to remember one thing, it's just that 
um, you will get an annual uh, member statement from the ETF provider. And you want to make sure, and this is, applies to managed funds and ETFs, is make sure that you know, your things like your tax file number are registered. You know, a lot of people still don't do that with the share registry. Make sure it's actually registered because you don't want a hu- huge amount of withholding tax and to have a rude surprise. Um, and that's like, for example, BetaShares ha- uses Link Market Services as their registry. So if you get paperwork from them, that's how you do it. Um, okay, Drew. So you can get so your withholding got- tax back. So you, you just have to wait in your tax return. Yeah. So it's yeah, not gone. Yeah, that's right. You just have to wait yeah. for it. But isn't there like this whole thing uh, as well, like with the, the lost billions or something? Like the share registries just have all this money that's kind of like unclaimed by investors. Um, this is money out there in the ether. So, um, you, you know, you, you could be, if you just log in and check your, your statements, you might have things in there. Or um, How do you just, maybe just as an aside here, Drew, how do you, like is the, when you're not using like a RAP platform or something like that for a client, how do you monitor um, the the taxable gains and losses and performance. Do you use something like ShareSite, which I know is pretty popular amongst individual investors? Like, how do you tr- track that? So in TFNs, usually your broker will take care of that. But in terms of tracking gains, we use, I mean, the dominant provider in uh, financial advice is Iris and a platform called Xplan, um, which basically you can have every parcel that you've ever held and receive via a data feed. And then we can input a recommendation that then calculates based on various options, first in, first out, um, what the after-tax implication would be. So it's called, yeah, IRS, ASX-listed monopoly, essentially. Yep. Actually, <laughs> We're not doing stock is... tips today, so that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, there is one thing that I did actually want to re- recap on just there with the managed funds. Um, do you, when you look at like unrealized gains or, you know, realized gains from managed funds or ETFs or whatever, how do you monitor what may be good from uh, an income perspective? Like, do you look at like turnover? Are there any metrics that you might use to make sure that you're getting an ETF or a managed fund that actually is doing what you want it to do? You probably, you should have a good idea when you buy it. Like if you're buying a growth manager, you should expect none of that to come from dividends. Um, But it's when managers are doing different things. So maybe they're investing in income stocks to have less volatility. Uh, I mean, turnover is key. Um, and we'll usually in, in around May start talking to everyone. Obviously, some of it uh, isn't always available, but finding out what the turnover bet has been, if it's been a strong year, then you're going to start expecting higher distributions because you want to be able to invest that uh, pretty quickly when it all comes in. Um, yeah, so turnover and just flat out performance. You know, if they're good financial year to date, more than likely they've realized some gains on the way. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so one other option um, in the fund or managed fund side of things is actually superannuation. And we're going to bring this up again when it comes to talking about uh, the case study that I've got for you. It turns out, as you know, Drew, that of all of the Australian Investors podcasts we've done over the years, the case study that I did with you and Jamie was actually a top three episode in terms of downloads. So it's clearly like people want to know how these things are implemented. But um, for most people, we know like the basics, like you can um, add extra to super up to say $27,500 now, your your employer is putting 10% away or it should be, uh, so you can check via your super fund. Um, but what are the benefits of you know superannuation and that, that tax environment? The simplest part is the tax rate. So it's the top tax rate is 15% and that's on all super. 
depend doesn't matter if it's an industry fund, an SMSF, or a platform. The tax rate for superannuation is the same. Um, you get a discount similar to uh, investing directly on capital gains. So it's a two-third discount on the capital gain. So effectively, it applies so it's not to that a 10% 50%. capital gains tax rate. No. So it's 15% on income, 10% on capital gains. And then the 15% on income also applies to contributions you put in. So when you put money into any super fund, they'll, they'll charge contributions tax. Okay. And obviously, this has a huge benefit for high net worths, right? Yeah, I mean, just for anyone, it's it's an equal playing field, obviously. And the more you can put in, the more benefit you can get. Uh, but it's just by far and away the best entity structure. And I don't think it will change just because the low tax rate within it. And then once you turn 60, uh, you don't pay really any tax on the way out either. Um, it's you know The whole idea is incentivizing people to fund their own retirement and not rely on government and other pensions. Um, this is a question I'll probably bring up in the third uh, podcast that we do together, but a lot of people struggle with this because they want control over their money and their portfolio, but they also are aware of the tax benefits. However, they're worried that, you know, oh, well, it's not until I'm 65, you know, something like this. Is that kind of like a like a way to think about, oh, well, should I be putting more in super or should I just be investing outside? Like, I mean, this is a very complex thing. It's probably case-by-case basis and risk profile and investment goals. But is there a way to think about that? I think it really depends on your other priorities. So it's hard to recommend people in their 40s, like myself, who have a mortgage uh, to lock money away. There's there's higher priorities and flexibility if I can't touch it for 25 years. Um, and I think what a lot of people forget, particularly when you start having children, is there is a period where you just go sideways with your with your wealth, you know, if you if you're paying school fees, travel, uh, there's a, a period of usually in your 40s to 50s these days, I think, where it's incredibly expensive. But you can save once school fees and those sort of things go away. You can save incredibly heavily in a period from 50 to 65. I'm not saying you should wait, but <laughs> <laughs> as we know, compound interest. Um, okay, we'll come back to that yeah, in just a minute because yeah. I've got a, bit, a few quick fire questions for you in a minute. But um, the last one is like residential property and basically the taxable nature of that. So this is super important because a lot of people have either their primary residence or they have an investment property um, or, or more, which they are looking to, I guess, capitalize on. Uh, we've all heard of negative gearing. It was the massive election debate two elections ago. Can you just, just from, in, a, in a general sense, just describe the, the tax nature of um, residential property in particular? Yeah, so negative gearing is pretty simple, which is you have to lose money to get a tax benefit, which people kind of forget. <laughs> so why would you lose money by buying a property? Because your interest is higher, all the costs associated with that property are higher than the income you're getting from it. Why would you accept that? Because property prices have gone up 10% per annum for a decade or longer. Um, the question is always for those people buying now or at any time, will property prices keep going up and offset the the loss you're making on a kind of cash flow basis. It does get a bit more complicated though because there's cash expenses like rent and agents fees. Uh, no, that's not an expense um, and interest payments. Uh, but there's also non-cash. So there's parts of your house you can depreciate, which is a tax, a deduction against your rental income uh, and other not, you know, maintenance and these other uh, potential 
things that reduce the profit that you're producing from that asset. So um, I guess, I mean, one of the keys is property is generally a depreciating asset as well or or houses on property. So they always require more money. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So um, this kind of leads us nicely into the next uh, part of the show, which is actually just talking about the if we can break apart and find some attribution um, of the major asset classes where the how much the income explains the return of an asset class versus how much the um, the capital growth is explaining the returns of that asset class. Um, and I think there are a few key buckets we should talk to here. And maybe I'll throw them over to you, but I'm looking at things like Aussie property, um, equities, uh, bonds even, and maybe even like a diversified portfolio. Can we, in a way, break down the historical returns, which many of us would be somewhat familiar with, and try and identify what's the income component from that? Yeah. I mean, there's a, quite, there's a few that are quite simple, easy to measure, like the ASX 200 has basically returned 10% per annum for 15 years. And around half in Australia comes from dividends. Um, I'd say I didn't uh, get the global. The global returns have been slightly better over that period because of tech, essentially. Uh, if that's 12, say 12%, well, the income from that's more like one and a half to 2%. Um, so big dispersion between Australia. Australia's tax system makes it a higher income producing kind of share market. Mm. Property. Uh, Interestingly, almost identical long-term return as the equity market. Uh, likely smoother because given you don't look at it every day. And, <laughs> yeah, you don't look at it every day. No yeah. one's fractionalized. Yeah. <laughs> so 9 to 10%. And historically, you're looking at you know 2 to 3% from rent max. And that's usually your upfront rent, not talking about taking into account negative gearing there. So that's just the rental income you receive. So we're looking at um, basically double from Aussie equities versus Aussie property. So same total return, but double the income, not including franking credits, not including some of the negative gearing stuff um, from from Aussie equities. Okay. How about bonds then? Because bonds are something that like obviously make up a huge part of diversified portfolios. It's a tough one. It changes all the time. So the long-term return on bonds has been about 3%. Uh, in the last 10 years, a lot of it came from capital gains, not necessarily income. Uh, but if uh, I, the majority of that return would be income. And for instance, today, if you're buying a, I think when you're buying a bond, you don't really want to rely on it to make, to generate capital growth because for to generate capital growth, you need interest rates to fall further. And in this environment, it's more difficult. That's getting a bit too detailed probably. Uh, but you know, buying bonds today, you can get a three and a half-ish percent yield on a 10-year Australian or US issued government bond hmm. which is obviously up a long way from what it was even say you know six months ago six so, weeks ago <laughs> six weeks ago yeah at the time of recording that was 0.5 percent in december yeah yeah right that's crazy okay so so then um how much then you like from a traditional like balance portfolio what would that that'd be what four to five percent yeah, it ends up about four to five. So the average is very broad average, and you'll see a lot of super funds will advertise, you know, ten percent long term returns. Uh, the median for balance fund is somewhere seven to eight percent, um, and then the income, kind of as we said at the start, is four to five. Uh, income looks different in, you know, if you're managing money yourself, you see the dollars come in. If it's in a pooled fund like a 
pension fund or industry fund, then you don't necessarily see the income production, but it's, it would be around the same, if not. Yeah, right. Okay, so this is really interesting, and I think this is really just um, rehashing what a lot of people know, which is that obviously Aussie equities, great source of income, probably want to be diversified in that. Um, got Aussie property, which has relied on you know falling interest rates and um, you know, net migration, a lot of macro tailwinds, not as um, lucrative on the income front, but still in total return terms, it's been quite um, comparable. Bonds now all of a sudden yielding, which is nice for a change, um, and eventually that should drive up you know term deposits and 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 uh, what have you. Obviously, it drives up mortgage rates too. They're going up now. But, yeah. um, you can get a three yeah, percent term it. deposit. Yeah, that's it. And um, actually, I saw a friend getting a mortgage um, at the time of recording, 4.99% fixed for three years. So um, it's gone up quite a bit from even a year ago, right? Um, so at the end of the day, the historical returns, obviously, you know, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance, but we're seeing at probably at least half of the return from a diversified portfolio coming in the form of income. Um, so maybe I can just we can just do a little bit of kind of just a little bit of quick fire here. Um, is basically just ask you to talk through quickly the um, the benefits of using different strategies, and particularly we're talking about like more like the risk on slash you know growth slash equities growth alternatives, which we'll talk about in a minute uh, side of a portfolio. The next episode is going to be more focused on that defensive side. So. Um, how about then, Drew, like people using direct equity, so BHP, Telstra, Commonwealth Bank, Apple, Google, you know, all of these individual securities, what are the benefits of using that as a, as a way to express this kind of I want income, you know, strategy? Well, it's low cost. You can pivot and tilt towards those companies you think are either paying higher income or higher dividends at the moment or expected to pay higher dividends. Um, Buying the market, you get a bit of everything and it can be, you know, you can have the good ones and the bad ones in there. Um, Easy. I mean, Australia is pretty easy to replicate yourself. (laughs) 50% of the, as we talked about the last one, 50% of the market's in two sectors. So you can get a pretty good cross section. Uh, I mean, high risk, High reward. So essentially, if you're going low, if you're going direct, you're not going to hold as many stocks, which means you're going to be more convicted in those stocks, which will be more volatile. But you have the potential for likely higher returns than if you think holding 200 stocks versus holding 10 stocks. There's a potential for higher returns and higher losses, of course. Um, and I mean, one thing is you you're not forced to own anything, so you can kind of pick. Uh, if there's companies you don't, or fossil fuels are paying great dividends at the moment, but if you don't want to invest in fossil fuels like us, then you don't have to hold them, um, I think is a key one. Yep. How about then with um, funds in particular? So not necessarily ETFs, so you could bundle these together too if you want to. Like um, Using funds, whether it's active or passive, to get the exposure for income. I mean, everyone will say professional management. So you get, instead of you picking stocks from research, you get, team of 40 in London, Shanghai, New York, all over the place looking at stocks and trying to come up with ideas. Um, while stats are pretty damning, there are quite a lot that can outperform. So you can get a better return than the than the index in some cases. Uh, you're generally going to be more diversified than what you could do yourself. Um, and then you're able to access places that you, know, you generally can't invest yourself if you're just doing it on the ASX or through a ComSec account. Um, so more diversification, and then there's parts of the market that clearly there's more potential to generate 
outperformance. You know, smaller companies, technology, yeah, where someone has a, a competitive advantage, and you want to find managers that do that for you is the key. Mm. Mm. Yeah, in the last episode, we talked about using your fee budget. If you imagine that you've got a certain amount of, you know, the percent that you want to spend on fees across your portfolio, where do you put the more higher priced, more expensive expressions or strategies or funds or whatever? Um, and then ETFs, mate, probably the last pillar for um, income investors. Um, we, we obviously, we, we've talked about property separately on the show before. So how about ETFs? Best of both worlds, probably. So ease of implementation, you can get everything click of a button uh, highly diversified um, so as I said you're generally buying passive or index or something that has 30 to 50 to 200 holdings in it so um, reporting's easy you don't have to do paperwork you just get a letter every year and you put that in your tax return it should actually go straight into mygov or, or the ATO portal for you uh, and you can pretty much buy them on any platform whereas you know some funds you can buy it on comsec you can buy it on a hub 24 um, Whereas some funds you can't access everywhere would probably be the, yeah, the key a, difference there. You know. Bit of argy-bargy in terms of who's protecting what ground when it comes to platforms and, and funds. Um, the thing that when we talk a lot about all of this uh, like portfolio construction, so we've talked through like how does the historical returns shake out or how do they, uh, then we've talked about I guess the various expressions on the growth side of things. The key that a lot of investors probably don't think about enough is how do I design a portfolio that matches what I want to get from my wealth creation journey? Um, and like, how do I actually think about implementing that uh, in real life? So how much do I have on one side of things uh, in terms of growth? Do I want, you know, risk off here? Do I want non-correlated bets there? How do you match the, a portfolio to an individual and I'm just trying to kind of leech ideas if you like how I could do it or how another investor could do it. I think it's kind of multi-step and getting to know each person. Um, we've found, you know, the lifestyle is the most important part. And if you start taking too much risk or going the wrong direction, focusing on the investment part when the lifestyle part isn't right, that's where uncomfortness or uncomfortableness uh, and challenges come. So it's, very much, we do risk profiling like everyone does, uh, multiple discussions, but really understanding what that person wants. Do they want the $2 million house? Do they want multiple cars? Do they want to move? Um, or do they, they're never going to do that. So they just want to grow wealth and have a passive income. Um, and then it's really several conversations. It's yeah, not a not an easy one, but I've got some kind of broad kind of yeah. ideas for the purpose yeah, of this at least. So what I asked you is basically how do we – like how, how can we give you some scenarios and then you just as quick as you can just tell us like how would you – just general terms like um, using very – like we're using stereotypes here. I'm just going to throw some very quick scenarios at you and you can just respond to me of how much they should have in growth versus defensive and think about – this just loosely so imagine I'll put a, a proviso on each one for you okay put a proviso on it so okay so 30 year old no kids single like working professional yeah if you've got if you don't need capital for anything else like you don't have a mortgage you don't plan to buy a house uh and you've got enough set aside for emergencies uh you'd think about going almost 100 percent into growth 
in multiple gross okay. assets. Yeah, okay. How about 40-year-old, now we've got two kids? I think this is that period of stagnation that I probably said before. Uh, like so you're sideways. probably looking at everything going into, yeah, everything into education and paying off the mortgage. Um, and as you make ground on the mortgage, that's when you start thinking about putting more into investment. I mean, even at 40, you struggle to maximize superannuation contributions just because you probably, there's more pressing issues like school excursions or, um, or holidays. So this is kind of prioritize your lifestyle and family. Um, and then, yeah, as you get ahead on your mortgage, then that's probably when you start to uh, put put capital away and invest it. Do your clients ever use the mortgage like as a line of credit for equities, portfolios or something like that? Uh, they have, yeah, in the past, younger clients. We're primarily getting more and more retired clients. But yeah, using, it's, there's a thing called debt recycling where you're essentially replacing, you get ahead on your, your non-deductible house mortgage and you're drawing funds out of deductible, uh, tax-deductible investment mortgage to invest and i mean a lot of people we say it all the time if you don't we don't want to force people into becoming equity investors if you're more comfortable with property then use that to buy property um the key is as i think uh as a paul clitheroe always says you just have to start like and put discipline into it that's the key to compounding Mm. okay what about a 50 year old with teenage kids this is where i probably start to get more aggressive. So your, your savings, are start, savings are starting to ramp up. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel of school fees and school sports and traveling with four people in your family all the time. Uh, this is where you're probably, you know, you're backing back from 100% growth and starting to drop. You know, you might put start putting some lower risk assets in there to start getting ready to draw passive income from there. So I had it around 2080 if that makes sense. So 20 and lower risk and 80, very broad, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, okay, so we've got 20% in risk off, 80% risk on still. Um, what about then the 60-year-old? Because this is where we start to think about, we've got super um, and we're probably, we can see it um, around the corner thinking that we might actually rely on the money soon. So what is a 60-year-old looking to retire in the next five to 10 years think? And there's been a lot of rules and rules of thumb that have come out, but none of them really, you can't rely on any single one. Uh, we'll always try to work out, try to match the amount of capital someone has to the amount of income they need. And hard, one of the hardest part is understanding how much they're spending. Most people don't know how much they're spending. You know, the, I'd look at the, my offset account, how it changes over a year. And that's usually the most accurate way to do it, not trying to track it every day. Um, what do you mean by that, this, sorry? I what do you mean usually, by tracking the offset? Well, I only really have one bank account and that's my offset against my loan. So if I can, and everything I do goes into there. Um, so, you know, my credit cards automatically paid out of their salary bills or one account. So if my offset has gone up 30 grand in a year, well, I've saved. <laughs> that's my easy kind of check. And if you do it over a year, then you don't miss, um, you know, you know, sometimes you've got a big bill that comes up right before or uh, that was yeah, what I did. Maybe it's too simple, but it doesn't tell me where it went. It just tell me how much I had left over. Here's another yeah. question diving into the world of Drew. Um, do you then put everything on your credit card and then it's automatically paid off by your offset? Yep. So you still get all the rewards? Not for everyone. Not everyone likes it. Yeah, some people want their own bank account, but I'm, 
I'm a financial advisor and inherently frugal sometimes, <laughs> depending on what I'm not for. As you know, I'm not frugal on everything, but uh, no, you're putting in your offset account. It's still accessible. Uh, you're not being charged interest on that amount. It's just a no-brainer for me and the way I spend. Um, and then everything else goes on the credit card. Um, then you can use buy now, pay later and pay that on the credit card too if you want. You don't pay any interest <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> okay. Not that frugal so, anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, horses for courses. I am not one for credit cards, but that's just me. <laughs> um, so, uh, But it's good to know because there are like you get rewards points, you get all that sort of stuff. And I know a lot of our listeners do it too because they always tell me about it. Um, okay, so uh, now I'm hoping to do a bit of quick fire with you and I'm actually going to do it too. Um, and I'm hoping that you can just give me like 15 second answers only. And we're talking about building a diversified portfolio. And I want to know what you think of whether or not these types of investments could find a place in there. So um, just, you know, first thing that comes to your head, you can go, then I go, I'll introduce what we're talking about. So um, the first one is direct stocks, whether that's Aussie or global, do they have a part in a portfolio? Yes, but with a clear structure and and strategy around them. Yep, I agree. I would say um, my strategy for those of you that are probably new to this is probably like the core and satellite approach. These are perfect for the satellite approach. If you're building core wealth, you probably want to do it um, in the low-cost diversified way. Um, Listed investment companies, I think we're going to disagree here. Yeah, I'm more... I don't think there's a, an issue. I'd prefer either going direct or ETF. So I'm not a big fan of listed investment companies. I know they provide you. You tell me they provide more consistent dividends, um, mm. but they also uh, tend to be slow moving. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So I was just going to say for fully franked income, uh, even if they're like um, the MFF Capital LIC, just to name one in Australia, um, invest in global stocks, but it. It's taxed in Australia, so there's a benefit there as well. So, um, yeah, there are certain instances where I do like it. Like you could probably think of Washington H. Sol Pattinson as a lick, like a super low-cost lick, even though it's not. Um, so that's probably one that I like. Um, how about real estate investment trusts? Yeah, I think solid diversification, you can buy all kinds of, you know, it's basically fractionalizing an investment into property. More volatile than property, but you can get, you know, commercial properties historically yielded better than residential mm. property. So, yes. Yep. I like it too. That's all I need to say. Um, residential rental properties. I struggle for income because most cases the yield is low. 2 to 3% on most cases you're losing money um, at this point of the cycle, I think, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty tricky. I think um, I would be happy to – I don't have one, but I, I would be happy to have maybe one or two, but – I'm definitely not in the camp of building a massive portfolio. What I see, a lot of people that build massive portfolios, they tend to unwind them after they've built them um, and then just simplify and things like listed strategies. So, um, okay, commercial property. Some people buy these directly. Yeah, I think the size is a challenge. Um, REITs tend to, real estate trusts tend to do have a better option for that. Uh, I think commercial property is good if you think about what the average yield is. I think something like Chadston's yielding 4.5%. In, in vicinity of the stock. Um, so you're getting higher income from different parts of the commercial property market. So it's a yes, but difficult for most people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would agree with that. Okay. The next one, contentious one, mate, is crypto. People think they can stake coins and um, get yield from crypto. So yes, no. 
I'm too old to answer this question. I'm nearly 40, so I'm well beyond crypto land. Uh, I think it's a no. You know, this, this sits in speculative. If you want to money, you're as everyone's saying now, money you're willing to lose goes into crypto, not for income. Okay. Yeah, um, I would agree. I don't see it as an income-reducing asset class. And anything that's got uneconomical profits, you kind of assume they'll be arbitraged away eventually. Yeah, I would probably say that, you know, I can understand the um, the 1% crowd, the people that, you know, there's some funds, big funds that do this that are like, well, if it's something, then maybe 1%. But I don't, yeah, I've... I've got very limited means. It's all money that I can afford to lose in crypto and NFTs and all that sort of stuff. I've uh, managed funds. I'm guessing you're going to say yes here. Yeah, but for income, you want to find an actual uh, strategy that are focused on income. So buying any old fund uh, won't necessarily give you the income outcome, but there's some that are specifically targeted at franking credits. One we discussed, I think, yeah, on the other podcast as well. Yeah, would you go um, passive for income? Uh, in passive funds over active funds, typically? I think you pref- given the yield of most indices is, is pulled back by the smaller companies, you generally go active. Um, and there's, you know, there's history and papers that talk about tracking companies that have got large franking credit balances or are building up cash and have strong cash flow and the eventuality that they pay out big dividends. So it's um, there's quite a few of those strategies around. Okay. Final one, um, which I think you're going to say yes to because we've already spoken about this in the series before, is ETFs. Yeah, extension of managed funds. You can, you know, even the ASX 200, you can get, well, I think it was about 4%, isn't it? So, um, but there's a lot of the income you, the income managed funds are available as ETFs as well. So, yes for yeah. me. Okay. okay. Yeah, yes for me. Obviously, I own quite a few ETFs um, for income or for growth. So, um, like them, like them a lot. There's actually a question at the end which ties in with um, ETFs. So, there only had a couple of questions left for you, mate, in this first session. Um, the, the the thing that people don't really do, at least from a self directed investor perspective, is they tend to go, "Those are my defensive assets," um, and oftentimes they're just happy to outsource all of that decision making. Um, and these are my growth assets, and they don't really think that there's much in between. Um, we're taught at university and through finance school and all that sort of stuff that we're trying to find things that are growing but aren't correlated, meaning they don't move in the same direction. And we try and put them all together. We blend them all together. And we're trying to find this efficient portfolio. Um, what are what you would call growth alts? We've talked loosely in the past. I think we talked about it with Jamie. G- growth alts as an investment class. What does that mean? Essentially, it's the basic of what you said before, which is you're looking for assets that aren't correlated to your bonds and equities or for term deposits and equities. Um, so, put I can list a few of them, uh, but the aim yeah, is to great. build a portfolio that performs well in different conditions. So, starts at real assets. So that could be buying shares in Sydney Airport, you know, uh, or buying unlisted infrastructure asset like Melbourne Airport or shopping centres. Uh, infrastructure would be considered a growth alternative because it's historically not 100% correlated with equities. Uh, it moves differently in different environments. Uh, un- so private market assets, so private markets just not tradable on a stock exchange. So venture capital, private equity fall into this group. Um, long short strategies, so strategies that are seeking to profit from markets 
falling or from the individual movement of stocks rather than you know the rising tide of markets lifting everyone higher. Uh, and then hedge funds, um, which is the hardest to explain, but that's just basically you know groups of ma- uh, managers that are seeking to identify major trends before they occur and effectively betting on them in advance and, and benefiting from shifts in the economy. And often using gearing and that type of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And they're all different risk profiles, so not suitable. Not everyone is suitable to everyone. Um, mm. And plenty of dispersion in returns between and within the asset classes. Okay, so how then, Drew, like, so why couldn't I, say, for example, get four ETFs, one that does um, like Aussie equities, one that does global equities, and then one that does Aussie bonds and one that does global bonds, like passive ETFs, and just stick with that. Well, I think you. this is the worst year for the traditional uh, balance fund in history. <laughs> so that's, I mean, evidence <laughs> says you can't do it all the time and you need different access classes in different conditions. Uh, but I think what we've seen this year, it was fine. Like if you did that for the last 10 years, no, the last 10 years was the easiest period for investing probably in history. Interest rates fell, bond values went up, equity markets went up. Um, but the challenge, I think, is uh, both those asset classes are now correlated. So historically, bonds and equities have been negatively correlated. So when equities fell last year or in 2020, bond values went up. When bond values fell, as because equity, you know, interest rates were going up, so equities and the economy were doing better. Um, now they're both moving in the same direction. Markets are falling off because interest rates are going up. Uh, so in that environment, you don't want to be 100% in both of them because you're losing, could be losing money on both sides. So I think that's where the introduction of alternatives is important. Um, and we kind of see two purposes of them. One is having invested through a few crises now, you know, GFC in 2020, there's no point selling a stock that's fallen 20 to buy another stock that's fallen 20%. You still have to get the same return just to get, you know, is it 33% return from the new stock to break even? You want something that hasn't fallen anywhere near as far that you can sell and buy those cheap assets because that's where the real you know sources of performance come from during crises and in rebalancing. Uh, and that's course, a key part of alternatives. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, say you know it's like a typical client's portfolio. Um, let's say they're I don't know they're like just a typical fifty-year-old that's come into. Uh, Waddle Partners, how many funds, ETFs, like just different investments would be in their portfolio? Uh, individual line items, you're probably looking at 25 to 30. Okay. And that's all done through a platform, so you can administer it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then you think about below that, there'd be like 600 individual stocks or something you'd be exposed to below all that and bonds and... Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think investments, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people that are self-directed do it quite simply, right? Like they might have 10 positions, but um, mostly through listed vehicles, might have some like one or two managed funds or whatever. Um, and then they have their, obviously their cash and um, TDs somewhere else. Um, so I, I think this is this is really interesting because a lot of people don't really dive into that world because they think they might be out of their depth with like market neutral funds looking at long short, like what's a good one, what's a bad one. Um, whereas like long only equities funds, index funds, very simple, very easy to understand so people can wrap their head around it. Um, you mentioned in a podcast, and this is just, um, you mentioned in a podcast that 
that we've done previously that, that you have a fee budget, right? Like you have the maximum amount of fees that you want to kind of pay. Just like, is that like, how much are you thinking about? Are you guys thinking about like 1% across the whole of the portfolio, 0.75, 1.5? Like how much in fees, just loosely speaking, would you be comfortable with? I think, and this is only fees that uh, someone's paying on their investments, not advice fees and other parts of it. So we're probably at the moment looking at 0.6 to 0.7 across the portfolio. And, you know, comparison, you know, Australian super, I think sits at about 0.7, 0.77, and that's solely for investments. So that's kind of where the benchmark probably is. Um, And then different, you know, some, for some people, cost is incredibly important. So you can get a cost, you know, a portfolio down to as low as 10 basis points, but not necessarily, you know, you've only got a limited number of options to build that portfolio. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, then. So um, there are two final questions that I have on the end of this first episode, and uh, we've got a lot more to come in the other episodes. But then the second last question that I have for you is people that are looking to build long-term wealth, and I know you deal with a lot of like wealthy people, but also people that are on that journey too, what do you think are some of the behavioral traits that lead them and help them grow wealth over time? Maybe it's not necessarily strictly behavior, but maybe it's like what they do that helps them along that journey that stands, that helps them stand out. I think, I mean, I had like consistent strategy, but it's almost discipline. You know, discipline, there's the old Michael Jordan adage, isn't it? Something like 30,000 hours and you become an expert at something. But being disciplined in anything, in business, in applying yourself to that, in investments, it's more important than ever. So discipline saving is central to compounding. Uh, as you would have talked about over and over, you you need to be consistently buying more into markets when you're younger over a long period of time to get the benefit of compounding. And it's not, you know, the, the trait that, that trait becomes effectively a, a simple strategy, an investment strategy could be very straightforward. That's just on two pages. Uh, a lot of people don't write it down, but it's boring. But I sound like a army um, <laughs> colonel, or <laughs> lieutenant, or something. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Uh, it's yeah. just yeah, consistent. It's like sticking with anything. Um, I think is the key. Yeah, and it's easy to get thrown off the the, the horse when you're um when you're trying to ride the the bull markets, the bear markets, the commentary and the news and the media. Um, I think it was the very first conversation that I had with you and Jamie. Um, you talked about actually in a crisis, the benefit of having a plan is that it removes so much uncertainty because by actually just doing something, it you no longer have uncertainty because you know what you're doing. And so whereas a lot of people go into that and they're thinking, ah, you know, I've got a few stocks here, a couple of funds there, and this is kind of what I'm putting together. It's a bit of a mismatch of things. Um, But by having a strategy, you actually think, okay, that's where I'm going. That's my focus. Um, And I think that's, yeah, that's something that I've definitely taken on. Actually, after that conversation, I went away and looked at all of the best investment portfolio statements. Like there are some available online for free and I put them together for our members um, into like one big document to try and help them think about the questions they need to ask as well. Um, Okay. So there's one final question before I have you back for the next episode. And that is, do you agree or disagree with this statement? And knowing what you know about or your clients at Waddle Partners. Okay, this is the statement. And this is something that I heard recently. When it comes to your portfolio, it's best to diversify. But when it comes to your career, it's best to stay niche and focus. Do you agree or disagree? What do the kids say now? 100%? 
Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I agree. Not one hundred, hundred percent. That's fine. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely agree. You know, be, you know, become really good at what you do, and this is kind of the same. I viewed the same as a portfolio. Get eighty percent right, and then have fun. Have your uh, what do they call it? Your side hustle uh, as the twenty percent on the side. But if you don't get your core right, portfolio or life, you kind of you'd lack direction. I don't know how I can give advice. Look, geez, we're giving Life philosophical... advice is getting a bit too deep, too serious. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, um, on the Australian Philosophical Podcast. Um, <laughs> no, that's um, that's right. Like, Because you deal with the behavior... This is the reason I asked you this question is you deal with the behavioral side so much the time as I'm talking to investors. We're just talking about numbers. Yeah. Right? We don't talk about the behavior that goes into making this behavior. Decisions. Most of our discussion isn't about investments most of the time. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I thought that was really neat. So, um, you basically got two walks of your life. You want to spread your risk when it comes to your investment portfolio, and you want to go. You want to become an expert at whatever you do on your income side of things because you want to maximize that income. You want to become valuable. So, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a fitting way to end the session, mate. So, just to recap, you're going to be joining me for five sessions. The final session is going to be Q and A. We've got um, a couple of sessions around, you know building portfolios. We're going to talk about more the defensive side of portfolios in the next session. Um, so if you're listening to this, um, there'll be a new one every week for the next few weeks uh, and they'll be marked with a special just little emoji there at the start of the name so you can identify them if you want to hear Drew and me talk about these things. Um, you can get in touch with Drew. Um, there'll be sh- uh, links in the show notes. You can head to waddlepartners.com.au. I'll put all the links in the show notes if you want to um, reach him there. But um, Drew, for today's episode, thanks for making time to join me. Thanks for having me again. Look forward to it.